So here we are. We are uh, now at the turning point in our story of justice where we arrive to uh, what we could call the New Testament or really uh, Jesus showing up on the scene. And so the big question we're looking at today is what does Jesus have to do with the story of justice? Or even at a deeper level than that, what does Jesus have to do with this part of your Bible? Uh, there's a common misunderstanding that, uh, that Jesus brings kind of this whole new thing. And so that's why, I mean, I even avoid, kind of we have to because that's what everybody calls it, but calling this the Old Testament, the story of justice that we've looked at so far is we call it the Old Testament. We see that as being the thing over there, the old, but we're really a part of the new. And uh, we just miss out on what the whole story is doing here. And so this week, we're just going to be contemplating what is Jesus's relationship to the story of justice? What is Jesus's relationship to the story so far, to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures? And so uh, why don't we just, let's jump right into it. Luke chapter four, verses 16 uh, through 21. Let's, let's just begin to contemplate Jesus's relationship to the story of justice, to the Old Testament, the story of Israel. Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16 says, and he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And Jesus stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and then scrolled to the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to those who are blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and all of this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads this. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant and he sits down and all of the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on Jesus and he began to say to them, he began to teach them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For the original audience of Jesus's first sermon here in Luke's gospel, those who were able to hear him read from the Isaiah scroll and then to give this pronouncement, the, the weight of what they had just heard is something on par with that hearing from your spouse, we're pregnant or getting in the email or that call that's the job offer that you've always been wanting, you're hired, you start in two weeks. We may cognitively understand the words that we're hearing in our minds, and yet we cannot believe what we're hearing. And we cannot perceive all of the life-changing implications of the statement that we've just heard. What we've just heard will forever change our lives. We know the words of what we've heard, but how this has, what this means is we can't seem to put it together. That would have been the experience for those in the synagogue here with Jesus. The anointed one, the, the Messiah, the liberator, the one who's brought the year of the Lord's favor, that he's here now, that it's been fulfilled that the good news of Isaiah 58 and 61 that he reads from there, he quotes, that good news for the poor and for the captive, for the blind and the oppressed, that's here now, that's beginning. You see, Luke here gives us Jesus's first sermon is this synagogue sermon that the scripture has been fulfilled. 
It sounds eerily similar to what we saw at the beginning of this year in Mark chapter one, in verse 15, where Mark distills Jesus's first sermon by having Jesus simply say that the time is fulfilled, not the scripture, but the time. It's two ways of saying the same thing, is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God has drawn near. So repent and believe. You see, for Mark, he summarizes Jesus's words as the kingdom of God. Isaiah talks about the kingdom of God as being liberty for the captives, good news for the poor, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed. The kingdom of God, it's all coming together in this word fulfilled. That word that you see Jesus say here, today's scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing or back in Mark, that the time is fulfilled. That word gets used over 36 times throughout the four gospels. In short, you can summarize the entire work and life and ministry and mission of Jesus in one word. And it's fulfilled, that he has fulfilled the scripture, that the time is fulfilled, that Jesus is fulfilled. So today, this is Jesus's relationship to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures, to the story of justice so far, is that in him, it is fulfilled. What does that mean? Today, we're gonna look a little bit more at that word, but let's begin again in just a word of prayer that the spirit might guide us through the scriptures today. And so Father, we thank you for Your word, God, we're grateful for faithful eyewitnesses uh, to Jesus's first sermon, uh, to those disciples and apostles who uh, together uh, worked and put together these eyewitness documents that are the gospels, uh, compiled in such a way that we might reflect on the good news of Jesus, not only to the original audience, but now here to us 2000 years later. And so God, we know that your word has been inspired that, that as you have guided human hands and minds in the bringing together of these scriptures, that we ask that you would now bring together, that you would inspire our thoughts through them. Would you help us to perceive who you are more clearly, that we might understand what it means to be your people more fully. In your name we pray, amen. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills? We looked at Mark and the time is fulfilled. We look at Luke here and the good news of Isaiah is fulfilled. Let's jump over to Matthew chapter five. Let's look at another example of Jesus using this fulfillment word. In Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 17, where we'll be in a second, we find Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember back in our story of uh, justice series, when we began, we looked at the Beatitudes and Jesus's statement about being the salt and light of the world. Right after that, Jesus says this, barely out of the introduction of this Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's his way of saying the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Don't think I've come to abolish those things. I've not come to abolish them, but, and here's that key word, fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In his language, the iota or dot, it is the the dot of an I or the crossing of the T. None of these things will pass away until all that is the law and prophets, all that they speak of is accomplished. Therefore, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the Bible nerds and the pastors of his day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Matthew, just like Mark and Luke, the first sermon 
that they give us. It's another distillation. It's all the same concepts that Jesus won't stop talking about fulfillment, about scripture and time, the law and prophets about how he is the fulfillment of all these things. Like I said, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. He's talking about the, 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 the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the story of justice so far. He summarizes the law and prophets then all together by just calling it the law or these commandments. And maybe just a few you know, weeks ago or months ago, if you would have read this, you would have thought about, yeah, Jesus fulfills maybe the narrative story. But I, I would argue that if you've been paying attention over the past few weeks, you hear Jesus's words here a little bit differently when you know what the law is all about and the family of justice that will bless the nations through their justice. You hear this a little bit differently when you remember that humans were made to be in the image of God forming and filling the world according to his wisdom. You hear this a little bit differently when you think about the prophets and what they were calling Israel to. When Jesus says, I've not come to abolish, but fulfill. And you know the story of justice so far. You cannot help but hear Jesus is speaking in a new way that maybe you hadn't caught before. That's part of the reason why we didn't just jump into how Jesus, we didn't just continue in Mark's gospel because we read past Statements like these, and we assume something out of them when we've read them in the full biblical theology, there it is again, they have a new weight and a new meaning and a new thing for us. So what Jesus is doing here is he's laying out his relationship to the story so far. And for Jesus, he says, this first half of the book, I've not come to abolish it, to destroy it, to overturn it, to get rid of it, to pass it away, to have it cease to exist, or even just to relax it, to make it a little bit easier for everyone. I've not come to do any of that. Rather, I've come to do something else. And it's around this something else that there is so much confusion within uh, there's Christianity at large, particularly, I mean, it's not even an American thing. It's just, it's, it's Christianity at large. As we have a difficulty in understanding Jesus's relationship to the Old Testament, because although he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, at the end of the day, we act like he has. When we think about the scriptures, when we think about the story, when we think about what this movement is all about, we, we tend to kind of talk about the Bible as if it's here, It's only the back half. It's only the story of Jesus. And Jesus says, I have a completely different relationship with it than that. We have a suspicion that Jesus, even though he says, I've not come to abolish it, that when we talk about what fulfillment actually means, it actually sounds something like abolishment. That Jesus has come to put an end to the law. And this suspicion cannot hold up. Frederick Dale Bruner, who I know many of you um, uh, have, have uh, either been with, I'm just so jealous. He's one of my favorite guys. And his commentary on uh, the book of Matthew, and he just calls it the Christ book, which is such a great name. He, he writes this, Jesus wishes to correct this suspicion. What the suspicion? The abolishment that Jesus has come to, do, to put away the law. Jesus has not come to set script, Hebrew scripture aside or to make it less important. He has come to fulfill it which literally means to fill it full by obedience, both his and his disciples, and by teaching its deeper meanings to set it fully on its feet. Jesus has come not to abolish or put an end to the story of justice, not to take it into some new direction, but the climactic fulfillment of everything that we've seen over the past month or so. And so how does he do it? Well, verses 19 and 20 here, Jesus talks about three ways in which he fulfills the law and prophets. What does he say? 
the one who's greatest in the kingdom, him talking about not just himself, but his disciples who would follow him are those who fulfill the law and the prophets through doing them, teaching them. And then in verse 20, it moves on to not just doing and teaching them, but by having a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. So what we're gonna do today is the rest of our time together is we're just gonna look at how does Jesus fulfill the law and prophets through his doing? How does he fulfill the law and prophets through his teaching? And then at the end, we're gonna circle around to how does Jesus fulfill the law and prophets by paving a way for a righteousness that exceeds the, the super Pharisees, the super hyper-religious, the super moral? How, how does he pave the way for that? So doing, teaching, and then the righteousness Pharisees line. So let's just first look at how does Jesus's life, how does his doing fulfill the story of justice? Well, when you read through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you follow these eyewitness accounts of how he behaved and how he lived, what you find is he's looking eerily similar like everything that we've read or humans were meant to be in the story so far. Back to the book of Genesis, that Jesus fulfills the foundation of Genesis that unlike humanity, Jesus is truly the, the human being that you and I are meant to be. He images, he reflects God into the world through his forming and filling work. Unlike you and me, that, uh, that though he has been tempted to form and fills in ways that would be self-serving, he continually lays them down out of an obedience and trust of the Father. He has done what you and I could not do by being the image of God fully that we were meant to be and yet have failed to be. Similarly, he fulfills the family of justice as being an Israelite, as being a Jew, that he fulfills the family of justice. He's like the true Israelite, the true, the true Jew, who unlike Israel's failure to bless the nations through their righteousness and justice, when you read through the gospels, you find him doing what? Blessing, not just Israel, but the nations through his righteousness and justice. So the formation of justice, you could go to Luke 2, where you find Jesus growing in wisdom, wisdom in favor with God and man, the wisdom there. He's being, he's, he's like the true little disciple sitting under the wisdom literature that Pastor Isaac looked at. Jesus is someone who's been so deeply wired and formed by Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. He, he's fulfilling it all. He's bringing it all together. And so just to look at a few examples, what do we find about Jesus fulfilling justice through his life? Well, even before he's born, Mary, she prophesies over him that his life will be one of what? Filling the poor, but turning away the rich empty. Jesus's first witnesses to the pronouncement of his birth was not the royal who's who or the religious who's who, but it was the shepherds on the field. The shepherds, I mean, this is the working class poor that at their time had all of these stereotypes around them as being lazy, as being undignified, as being unreliable. And they're the ones that the red carpet gets rolled out for the angels singing about the birth of Jesus. Jesus entered into the human experience in his incarnation of God taking on flesh and not only becoming a human, but being born into a poor family is what we can bring out of the scriptures as we look at his early childhood. I mean, Jesus upset, we looked at this earlier this year, Jesus upsets the merit-based rabbinic system of rabbis and disciples by taking on as his disciples, absolutely unqualified fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots. He's turning over the whole merit system of discipleship. He upsets the Jewish social systems of his day by meals with outsiders. He uses his divine privileges, divine power 
Think about that. If you had the power of God within you that you could heal, that you could do, you walk on what you can do anything, how would you steward that kind of power? When you read through the gospels, Jesus is never using it for himself. It's to feed the hungry. It's to heal the physically sick. It's to heal the spiritually sick in his casting out of demons. He goes and he heals and he touches the untouchable leopards. Jesus resisted the sexism of his day by speaking openly with women in public. He publicly denounced the unjust divorce laws of his day that left women vulnerable. He refused the sexism of his culture when he made women the heroes of his parables and refused it all when he brought on women disciples as his followers. He showed the greatest respect for a woman caught in sin. The first witnesses of the resurrection, just like the shepherds that everybody looked down on, was the women. Those who in Jesus' time were not able to give evidence in the court of law because women were seen as not having a high level of cognition. They were caught up in their emotions. And so Jesus' birth and his death are highlighted by the first witnesses being those who the culture would view as, as marginalized on the outside or not in the upper levels. I mean, we could just keep going through all of these. Jesus resisted the ethnocentrism and racism of his day, making the hated Samaritan one of his uh, heroes of his parables. He proclaimed victory and good news to the Gentiles. He almost starts a riot in Luke chapter four, what we just read a moment ago, because he goes on to say that God loves Gentiles as much as Jews. He heals the servant of the Roman centurion who would have been one of Israel's oppressors. He displays special concern for children. He blesses the poor and hungry and pronounces woes on the rich and full. His prophetic ministry against, I am reading them all anyway, prophetic ministry against the unjust political and religious leadership of his day. He goes into the temple and he overturns tables and casts out the money, um, the, 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 the uh, money switchers. What is the word I'm looking for? They, they turned over the money. They were exploiting the poor and the vulnerable in the temple. He calls the political leader, uh, Herod Antipas, he calls him a fox and not like in um, uh, Steve Carell, like, you know, he's a silver fox, but a fox in that time, there's language of troublesome and unclean and crafty. He's calling out political leaders. He calls out the religious system, calling Pharisees whitewashed tombs, serpents and spawns of Satan. You see, Jesus is, to say that Jesus just came preaching the gospel and, and, and making the gospel something about only spiritual salvation is to drastically leave out so much of the gospel's narrative of Jesus putting right things that are wrong and addressing systems that are wrong. And all of this led to Jesus's betrayal. It led to his trial. It led to his death on the cross. It was one of the reasons that he was put to death. And, and his death, so central to the whole conversation and story of justice that we're going to come back and do a whole week just on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But let, let's keep going because Jesus's life and his death, as we'll see next week, was all, I hope you can see now, a continuation of and fulfillment of the story of justice so far. As Jesus does these things, he's stepping into the failures of Israel and humanity from page three of the book where he's showing us what justice looks like. He's showing us what it looks like to be truly human. And even more than that is the true image of God. He's showing us what God is like. Jesus does the law and the prophets by doing justice. So that's doing. How does Jesus also not just do justice through his life, but also teach? How does his teaching fulfill the story of justice? So, 
deep breath as we keep moving because now what we're going to think through is not just his actions, but Jesus's words and his teaching. Because as we see, Jesus fulfills the story of justice through his teaching on the law's deeper meaning. As Frederick Dale Bruner a moment ago says it, he, he puts the law and the prophets fully on their feet. And in doing so, Jesus reveals and establishes a whole new way to read the Hebrew scriptures for his audience, a whole new way for us to read it as well. We got a sneak peek of this a few weeks ago when we were on the law week, because what we were referring to as the divine ideal beneath all of those commands, here we are, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Though his language is about fulfillment. It's the same concept that the fulfillment of the law is getting to the divine ideal of it, not just in the letter, but in the heart of the law. And so how does this play out? Well, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount and what we read in Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 20, in verses 21, all the way to the end of chapter five, we watch Jesus as he shows what the fulfillment of varying examples of the law looks like. So what does he do? He says, you have heard it said, and he's quoting from the law, do not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then here's the, here's the pattern. But I say to you, and he takes it to the fulfillment. Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. So for Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, do not murder, is not simply in you not killing. It goes deeper into your heart and the anger that you stew over of not letting, conf of letting conflict go unreconciled, of, of stewing on it. He goes on to adultery, how the law said don't commit adultery, but Jesus says, but I tell you, it's fulfilled and not even looking at someone in a lustful way of objectifying their body for your own pleasure. He goes on to deal with the divorce laws within the law. You heard it said, hey, don't, if you have to divorce, then you have to provide them with a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, no, th th that is fulfilled and they're not even being divorced on the table except for the most extreme circumstances. The law says, you shall not swear falsely but you shall perform for the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus says, you know, the, the big fulfillment of that is you don't even have to swear. You don't even have to make oaths because your yes is yes and your no is no. He goes on to say, you know, the, you heard in the law, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And we, we talked about that back in the law week, not of being um, the propagation of more and more violence, but actually stopping it at equal treatment. One eye for one eye, because the way the human heart goes is, you take my tooth, I'm gonna take your tooth and your nose and your eye. It, it stops it. Jesus goes, you know what actually is the fulfillment of that? It's not eye for an eye, but actually you turn the other cheek. It's actually the a, a ethic of nonviolence. And Jesus says that the command to love your neighbor is actually more deeply fulfilled in you, even loving your enemy. Do you see here what Jesus is doing is it's the divine ideal and he's showing us a new way to read the Old Testament, a new way to read the old commands that, that we are not simply to go after and look for the letter of the law, but to discern through Jesus's examples here, what is the fulfillment of the law? He helps us here. And this isn't Jesus's final teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He does this um, with the Sabbath the Sabbath being a day of rest and stopping. And Jesus says the fulfillment is not just your own stop and resting, but also you bringing a stopping to the suffering of others. Jesus does this with capital punishment and he turns it out into now forgiveness. 
He even does this with the tithe that Israelites were to give 10% of all their harvest to the temple for uh, the administration of the work of the, the community of faith, but then also for the poor. Jesus turns it up and says, you know, the fulfillment of 10% isn't 10%, but he doesn't give us an immediate and always percentage. For Zacchaeus, it's 50%. For the rich young ruler, it's 100%. But Jesus says the fulfillment goes deeper than the letter of the law. And what's crazy is that Jesus doesn't only give us a fulfillment of just particular laws. He gives us the fulfillment of the entire law. Matthew 22, 35 and 40. Let's see what he says here. And one of them, a lawyer, that just being uh, a pro in the, the law, the Torah, you know, Jewish lawyer. He asked Jesus a question to test him. And he says, uh, teacher, rabbi, which is the great commandment in the Torah? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he gives them a, a BOGO, a buy one, get one free. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, love God with all you are and your neighbor as yourself. Depend, or, or in, in Greek that Matthew's writing, it's the word for hang. Everything, all the commands hang off like a chandelier. These two anchor points, which are loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So what is he getting at? He's quoting from the Old Testament itself. He's not imposing or making something new. Love God with all that you are. It's the, 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 the lawyer would have been aware with. As a, as a Jew, he prayed this, this twice a day, the Shema, the prayer of allegiance that comes from Deuteronomy 6. And even in saying, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. So Jesus says, man, in the law, there are these two commands that everything flows from. All the law hangs off of loving God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself. But what's interesting is that Jesus says not just that on these two hang all the law, but all the prophets as well. So if we go back to last week and we contemplate, we just think about this. How do these two things connect to what we looked at in the prophets last week? Well, what were the two main accusations of the prophets against the people of Israel? It was idolatry and injustice. And what is idolatry other than a failure to love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, with all that you are? And what is injustice other than to not love your neighbor as yourself? So do you see, even in the accusations of the prophets, Jesus says what they were getting at was a failure to love God with all that you are, no divided love, and to love your neighbor as yourself. See, the whole, this is what we mean when we say Jesus fulfills the whole story. It's all coming together in his teaching and in his life. Now, the question is, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? How does this play out? Well, Jesus helps us back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Here, you see the law and the prophets language just keeps coming up. Whenever Jesus is talking, it's all him putting together a picture of what the fulfillment of the story looks like. Now, I want to notice a few things here in what Jesus says about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. First and foremost is that love is not a warm feeling directed at your neighbor, but an active treatment. It is an embodied action. Not just, oh, I love my neighbor. Hey, it's to do for them what you wish others would do for you. Now, it's Again, just to tease this out a little bit, what's interesting, it's, it's not interesting, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it makes total sense. Jesus certainly doesn't give us here what uh, ethicists call the iron rule. What's the iron rule? The iron rule is 
Might makes right, right? It's social Darwinism. If you've got the strength and the power, you do whatever you, you, there's, at the end of the day, history goes to the victors. And so you got the might, you got the power, you're good to go. Jesus doesn't say that, you know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, might makes right for this is the law and the prophets. Now, what's interesting though, is that Jesus also doesn't give, again, what ethicists refer to as the silver rule, which is what you do not wish done to you, do not do to others. What he gives is the golden rule, what you wish done to you, do to others. What's the difference? Do you notice the negative? Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. And the positive, do to others what you want them to do to you. So again, what's, what's the difference here? A.B. Bruce in the Expositor's Greek New Test, or Greek Testament. Um, that sounds like really riveting reading, um, but it is uh, for me at least. He says this in, in reflecting on this, the negative, that's the silver rule, do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you, confines us to the region of justice. The positive takes us into the region of generosity and grace. It, is, it was reading... Matthew 7, everything up to this point, and then reading A.B. Bruce this week, that the oxygen left the cabin for me this week. The mask came down, the seatbelt sign came on. As it just, the whole story came together for me in a brand new way. To fulfill the story of justice, the fulfillment of justice is, is not just do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. It's not just justice, it's love. It's generosity and grace. So you could say otherwise, to fulfill justice is to love. The letter of the law is justice, not doing to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Equity and equality. But the fulfillment underneath that, that reveals the heart of God is to love your neighbor as yourself. See the story of, I just, this week I had, to, I had to just sit and stare at the wall for a second. The story of justice, everything so far, the foundation of humanity, the, the family of justice, the formation of justice, all of our, the failure of justice within Israel and the prophets, all of it the whole time has been about love. It's been about who I give my love to, whether it's with God and the other gods, but more, more particularly here in the issue of justice. It's about a way of treating and seeing the other in our lives. Not with love, but in, in the most extreme cases with hatred, in some cases with apathy. Do you see underlying all of this, the whole story so far has been about love. It's been about whether or not you love those around you. And in particular, if the suffering and vulnerability and the oppression of those around you breaks your heart, if it churns your stomach with compassion and mercy and love. Do you see, we can have conversations all day long about who and what deserves why and what kind of treatment and how we should go about this and what if they misuse and what if the, and we can get into theories about justice. And th if you just, if we be quiet for a second and ask, what does it mean to love? We've now entered into the territory, the region of generosity and grace, the fulfillment of what Jesus has come to do. And so the reality is that love does not abolish or end or pass over the region of justice. Do you see this here? That, that in order to do the golden rule, you must certainly do the silver and maybe not do the iron. But to, 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 to love your neighbor means not just to execute justice. It goes deeper. It surpasses that. And it goes into the region of love. And love, heart breaks for vulnerable 
and pain. I, I love both of my children. There is something different about the way my love shows itself when one of my children is crying. And that is not because I love one child more than the other, but because my heart is wrenched to see the one I love in pain or in fear. This is where this is all coming together. I'm just like ranting now. All right, so here's the question. To love your neighbor, especially the vulnerable and the afflicted neighbor as yourself, is to do for them what you wish they would do for you if the who is the person that is due this sort of love and compassion and generosity and grace somebody asked jesus the same question luke chapter 10 25 through 37 and behold we have another lawyer another religious leader who who has been he spent his whole life meditating on the law and the prophets he comes to jesus and he says teacher rabbi he's asking the same question what shall i do to inherit eternal life and I love Jesus asks him, well, what's written in the Bible? <laughs> Just like throws it in his face. And he, I love that he goes, how do you read it? Like Jesus, every, Jesus is like aware of everybody has weird interpretations. And they're like, well, when I read the Bible, so Jesus goes, how do you read it? And so he, he gets into a discussion. And so the lawyer says, well, in my, from my perspective, it's that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, good on you. You've answered correctly. Go and do these things and you will live. But he, oh man, right there, that turn. But he, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who then is my neighbor? Do you see what he's asking? Who is due this sort of love my neighbor as myself? Because I, I really don't think I can give that to everyone. So who is that due to? And Jesus continues. He replies with a story. I love it. A man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho and he fell among the robbers and they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and then they departed. They leave him half dead on the side of the road. What are they living by? The iron rule, might makes right. Now, by chance, a priest, holy, holy guy, was going down the road. And when he saw the man laying half dead on the road, what does he say? He saw him and he passes by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, again, this is another priesthood language, a holy man. When he came to the place and he saw him, he too walked across the road and got on the other side, the other sidewalk. See, this is a little bit of the silver rule going on here. Man, that stinks to be him. You know, if I was a negative, a Samaritan, and here's some of Jesus breaking down the racial stereotypes of his day by, by using the language of a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, again, the man who was laying half dead on the road. And when he saw them, he had compassion. How am I on time? Okay, little Bible nerd note, but you're gonna get this. It's in even minutes. The word compassion in the Greek is a word that Jesus talks about he himself having, and here he gives it to the Samaritan. It's this Greek word that, that Matthew's writing in, splaknitsomai. And we translate it as, uh, it's a fun word to say. It clears the throat a little bit. Uh, we, we translate it as compassion because in, to literally translate it from the Greek, it, it says that his guts were wrenched. And, and it's, it means his, his, he felt it in his guts, in his back. Like this is not just like compassion. Oh, it's pity. Oh, I feel bad for him. It is that, it, I mean, they, they saw the stomach as the core place of where your emotions came from back in the day. And you feel that sometimes when you really are moved with something. And I just love that his, his, it just says when he saw him, it's like his, his bowels tore open with, with brokenness. And so what does he do out of this place of splachnitsamai, of, of, of this brokenness that he feels for this man? He went to him 
He binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he sent him on his own animal. So he doesn't you know, walk alongside him. He puts him up on the animal and he walks alongside him. And he brings him to an inn. And he takes care of him there at the inn. The next day, he took out two denarii. And it's not a little bit of money, <laughs> a good amount of money. And he gives them to the innkeeper saying, hey, I, please take care of him. And whatever more you end up needing to spend on him for food or, or medicine, whatever needs to happen, I'm, I'll, I'll, prom- I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked, so, so my, my lawyer friend seeking to justify yourself, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, go and do likewise. The way of the Samaritan and what we've just read is the way of compassion, of the bowels being wrenched, of mercy. It is love for the afflicted and the vulnerable. Do you notice that in the parable that the the, uh, priests or even the Samaritan, let's use the positive example, does not come and preach to the man on the side of the road. Oh, I'm so sorry that you have this physical suffering, but let me tell you about the greater freedom that you can have within your heart and within eternity. No, he meets the physical needs of this man on the side of the road by binding up his wounds, by taking him out of the place of vulnerability where he might suffer more and then financially giving of his own accord to care for him. Far too often, and this is just a human problem. We view injustices in the world as the Levite and the priest. We see what's happening there and we step to the other side of the street. It's what I've done. I know it's what each and every single one of us, not just in our, like, like quite literally stepping to the other side of the street when we see someone who's clearly in need, who's clearly, and we step to the other side of the street. And we do this not only physically with sidewalks, but all the time within our lives. And as a parable, as a story, what Jesus invites us into pondering is what was the motivation of the priests and the Levite? What was going through their minds as they stepped to the other side of the streets? Questions of how did the man get there? What foolish decision did he make that placed him in a place of vulnerability and oppression now? He probably drank too much last night and ended up robbed and naked on the side of the road. He probably didn't have a good father figure who was able to tell him not to walk alone in the middle of the night or how to defend himself. You see, just coming through some layer of possibility to keep them from getting involved in what was happening with this person. And see, we see that and do this, excuse me, we do this continually with it. What happens is the same sort of layers of possibilities that we, so that we can walk on the other side of the road than admitting that there's an issue with not only this person that needs to be addressed, but at large within our culture. What do we do when we hear stories of sexual assault? We go to questions of what were they wearing? How much did she or he had to drink? Were they alone? Were they asking for it? Do you see that what we're doing is the same level of layers of possibility so that instead of calling a person in need, we can say that somehow it's justified and therefore we don't have to get involved. We do the same thing with racial injustices right now. I, I, I just like, I, I, every single day, I feel like I tell Aaron that I'm just gonna get off Twitter. But I mean, when you think about these instances of police brutality over the past few months, and like you just, you're never supposed to read the comments and yet everything is the comment section on Twitter. And so what do you find? 
is layers of possibilities that are construed so that we don't have to acknowledge that there was an issue in this particular instance. Layers of what, well, what if he would have done this? If he would have said that, if he would have just obeyed the law, if he would have done this, did you know that he had a rap sheet 20 years ago where he did this? If they would have just pulled their pants up, we, we layer on the possibilities so that we don't have to acknowledge that maybe there's an issue here. It's exactly what the Levites and the priests likely were doing as well. And I know that they were likely doing it, or at least it's in Jesus's mind, because I do it and you do. We all do this with every issue of injustice within our world. And it's all ways in which we give a, a, a stopgap from us having to get involved, from us loving them so that we can pass on the other side of the street. And so the way of the Samaritan is the way of love, of compassion and mercy, all of which is, but exceeds justice. It goes further than just the rights of the person. It goes deeper into what would I want if I were in your shoes? This is the kind of stuff that just transforms the whole conversation. The Samaritan does not arrive and go, uh, I would like to give you some help. Before we do, can you fill out this questionnaire? It's a multiple choice answer. We need to know how we, before getting involved. There's no proving himself to the Samaritan but motivated by compassion and love and mercy, he gets involved. So let's make this practical. A couple of things, and then we'll get to the Pharisees where we're going to end. How are we doing? All right, practical points. Questions for you to discuss in your discipleship groups this week. First and foremost, how does justice's fulfillment in love through the work and teaching of Jesus shift the entire conversation around the vulnerable in your neighborhood from last week? Similarly, how does love shift conversations around justice, particularly racial justice in these moments and months? Even more than that, again, what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself as we go through this COVID-19 moment together? To make this practical, just to settle in your heart right now or in a moment when we get into our response time or, or with your discipleship group, what is one thing you can do this week? to love your neighbor as yourself, to do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. And, and this isn't like, I mean, unless you've, if you've, if you've got the, the ability, like this isn't go and find a cure for COVID-19. This isn't that you turn over racism overnight. Like just stop and look at your neighborhood, look at your apartment, look at those living alongside you, look at those that you pass by every single day. What can I do for them? And it may be as simple as getting groceries or cooking, making cookies and just knowing specifically with the elderly that are so distant from human connection right now. There's, there's layers upon layers of possibilities. Not that we can distance ourselves and walk through the other side of the road, but that we can walk headlong into justice. Okay, let's do, let's do some wrap up stuff. Let's, let's finish up here. Back in verse 20, uh, 19, well, no, it's specifically 20. Jesus talks about not just doing and teaching the commandments and their fulfillment, but then he goes on to say this, this kind of scary thing. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious who's who of the day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so these Scribes and Pharisees were the religious moral leaders of the day. Jesus seemed to be always butting heads with, even though here he places them at some high scale in what they were doing. So how do we understand this a little bit more? Later on in Matthew 23, Jesus, like he gave blessings for the, pure, uh, for the poor and for those who mourn and for the meek, he gives woes for the Pharisees. 
One of them in Matthew 23, 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, again, that's that 10%. You're tithing, you're mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what, what, are, these, what are these Pharisees and, and scribes doing? They're doing a fulfillment of the tithing laws. Not just with what is my harvest, but even getting into the spice drawer and kind of, okay, 10% of this and 10% of this, right? They're, they're, they're taking a fulfillment of the tithing laws. And yet Jesus says, you guys are missing not even the fulfillment of, but just the letter of the law when it comes to justice and mercy and faithfulness. So what is the, the, the righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees and scribes? It is the fulfillment of all of the commands and all of the prophets. It's everything Jesus has just talked about. To have a righteousness that exceeds the, the scribes and Pharisees is to fulfill all of the commandments of the law. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say though, you should have just done justice. He doesn't just say, you know, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, period. No, without neglecting the others. You should have done both, both the, the tithing and the religious, the morality, the, the spiritual, that sort of stuff, and the physical embodied acts of justice and mercy, both of them. And this comes back to what Jesus says in calling them hypocrites. In our minds and dictionaries today, hypocrite means, you know, people who say one thing and do another. Uh, in the original Greek of, again, what Matthew's writing in here, it's, it's just the word for an actor. Hypocrite is literally, it's, it's them making an English word out of the Greek word, hypocrites. They say just, we make a hypocrite. We make like an English version of it. Instead of putting what the word means, which is just actor. And so that's a whole conversation about translations. But the idea is scribes and Pharisees are actors. They are those who are putting on a show for their own social benefit. He's getting at the fact that they tie the mint and the dill and the cumin is that it's not actually even out of a fulfillment of a devotion to God, but because when they come into the temple or the synagogue to make their offering of these things, that everybody will look at them and see how righteous and holy they are. For them, good works and good deeds are all about how people perceive me and what I can get out of that. He continues this uh, idea in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. So there's a conversation that begins to go going and Jesus, it says, said to the man who had invited him, again, this being a Pharisee, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Why? Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What is Jesus saying here? Well, John Newton, 18th century hymn writer uh, who wrote Amazing Grace, which most of us know him for. But he was also an ex-slave trader uh, who got saved out of um, slave trading into becoming a, an abolitionist, uh, fighting against slavery, but also, um, you know, Bible nerd. Um, he writes this uh, on what we just read. One would almost think that Luke 14, 12 through 14 was not considered part of God's word. And then he says a few things and he continues, nor has a part of Jesus's teaching been more neglected by his own people than what we just read. 
I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that it is in some respects our duty to give preference to the poor, I am at a loss to understand them. Preferential treatment of the poor and the vulnerable. And, and so if you disagree, you know, take it up with the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. <laughs> so what's going on here is Jesus is placing an emphasis on preferential treatment for those who particularly cannot repay you for your justice and love, which runs exactly counter to how the Pharisees were using not just their parties, but even their tithing is everything was put on for social clout for what you could repay for me. That my tithing is sure it's 10% of my deal, but if I get enough people that see me as tithing, even my spice drawer, oh, that's the stuff. Throwing on a party that people can come into my home and see how good of a, a father and Pharisee and husband that I am. Why? Because of the social clout here. And so we are so prone to do this in the church. I, I You know, I, I remember back in, when staff in the church in Reno, when we first had Emma, uh, you know, I'm carrying her around and uh, showing her off to people. And part of it was showing her off to people, but part of it was even uh, me being perceived, like, look at, the, look at the dad with his kid, you know? Like, there he is. And he's doing the ministry thing with it because you, you feed off of it. If you don't think you do this, then you're not looking in the mirror long enough. We do this in so many ways. And one of the things that I just want to just maybe contemplate, and so this is kind of Ryan's, you know, you know, contemplation moment. So take that uh, as you will, is that this sort of hypocrisy can also happen even in matters of justice, where we contribute and operate and engage in matters of justice, particularly, or at least at a divided level for the optics. What do I mean by this? Well, in one example of this, the day after the riots in Santa Monica, a few weeks, months, years ago, how long have we been in this? There uh, was like, it's like a 15 second video. You might've seen, I think I was looking at it this morning, like 18 million people have seen it now, where uh, this, this big SUV pulls up and up, out hops this like, you know, beautifully dressed little influencer. And so they get out of the car. They, she walks over to someone who is drilling in uh, one of the boards over a broken window. And she asks if she could, you know, help with one of them. And so the guy kind of stands aside. She gets the, the drill and, you know, one of the cronies steps up and, and grabs the pic, you know, the Instagram boyfriend grabs the picture. And then she gives the drill right back. And they walk in the car and they drive off. And like now, like, you know, of course, like, of course, what, is, what did culture do to her? She's absolutely canceled, lost her job. Like the whole thing's falling apart. And that's the thing is that all of this happens within 15 seconds. Now, the, the, the silliness and the foolishness of that sort of decision-making of using engagement in the brokenness of the world, quite literally with a broken window for the sake of what people will see you as and you're not giving it out of a place of love. Let's say tension of how her followers would have seen it on Instagram. It, it just, it all comes down to this dark manipulation where we will take good deeds done for the sake of not only those, but also there's a, at least a halfway percent, a 51, a 60% that, it, that it's, for me and how I feel about myself or how people perceive me. You see, this is ultimately, it's a manipulation of the less fortunate for what we can receive out of them. We too can be so prone to lesser versions of the same thing. And so again, we're in Ryan's little thought moment, but you could uh, rewrite what we just read from Jesus saying, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the social justice warriors and the allies, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Woe to you actors. You protest and post and vote, and yet you've neglected the weightier matters of actually loving people. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people, Jesus says, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. And so what Jesus says is necessary. All this comes together. So we're leaving Ryan's little moment. What Jesus says is necessary for those who seek to enter the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that is greater than an incredible resume of good works. Because of the fact that so often good works are done with a broken and divided motivation of not just being for God or for his people or for the vulnerable, but actually for ourselves. Our good deeds become self-serving. So Jesus is not against public works of love and justice, but those that are motivated by a divided intention. That's for the good of the person, but also for the good of my own public perception. And again, like I said a moment ago, if you don't see this propensity within your own heart, you haven't looked long enough. You haven't looked long enough. Jesus looks around the Israel of his day, so different than the age of the prophets, and yet still sees the same underlying issues of idolatry and injustice. You don't truly love God. And that's why you're tithing your your spice drawer. You just want to use your obedience to him for your own building up. And you don't truly love the poor. You're using them. Just like the slave masters and unjust landowners of Israel before you, you're using them, but you've just found a new way to do it. I wonder if Jesus would have similar words for us 2,000 years later. And again, I'm not downplaying the need for justice, even with divided motivation, that there's so much great work that can come out of that at a level of justice. What I'm saying is that for disciples of Jesus is that we ought to be motivated by something different. So how do we get there? How do we get out of the human rut of using, of idolatry, of justice becoming a mode in which we can develop something on ourselves? How can we have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? How do we throw parties for those who can never pay us back? It's by realizing that that is precisely what Jesus has done for us. He has thrown a party. He has set the table of fellowship for us. Not motivated by what we can repay for him because there's no way that we could ever repay Jesus. Too often we think of ourselves as Jesus' rich neighbors. He scratches our back with forgiveness and grace and we scratch his with whatever you want to fill in the blank there with. The reality is, is you will only be as sacrificial for those in need with no thought of monetary or social repayment when you truly grasp how Jesus did this for you unable to make a payback. And then when we throw the party, when we, we, we do so not out of what we can get out of anybody, but simply out of a reenactment of what Jesus has done for us. And so when the needy, the poor and the lame ask why they've been invited to the party, there's no hidden motives. It's because Jesus has done this for me. And this goes so much deeper than just opening our homes when we can again one day. This goes into, like Jesus says in Luke chapter six, how we set our budget. We're generous because of his generosity. It goes into how we plan our weeks. We actively enter into life alongside the suffering because Jesus in his weeks in life entered into ours. How we use our voice. Jesus prophetically called out broken systems and individuals like us with love. And so we do the same. It goes into how we use our powers and privileges. We use them for those without them, like Jesus did. Just read Philippians chapter two. We enter into the voting booth. We enter into justice in real and physical lives in the ways that we can in that little moment 
because Jesus did this in his own life. We do not separate the spiritual from the physical because the incarnation of Jesus, his life and teaching show that they are so united. All of this comes down to us being responsible stewards who steward what we have in keeping with how God, through Jesus, has generally, generously lavished us with all that he had. And so entering the kingdom, the coming resurrection of Jesus is never and cannot be God's repayment for our good deeds because even our good deeds are often such a mess. But it's the generous gift of the God that he gives to those that he loves. It is God's justice as fulfilled in his love. And so in our lives, we literally and metaphorically set the table for those who cannot repay because Jesus set the table with his own body and blood for those of us who could never in actuality repay him. Or as 1 John 4 puts it, we love him because he first loved us. Let's pray.